Ernest Hemingway told a story of a Spanish father and his teenage son who had a relationship that had become strained to the point of breaking. Finally, the son ran away from home. His father began a search in, in, in search of his, his rebellious son. And finally, in Madrid, in a last desperate effort to find him, the father put an ad in the newspaper. The ad read, Dear Paco, meet me in front of the newspaper office at noon. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. The next day at noon, in front of the newspaper office, 800 Pacos showed up. Many of us are Pacos, too. We have strained relationships with people we once loved, and forgiveness is the key to healing those ties. Last week, I started a list of reasons why we should forgive others. The first two were, the first one was, forgiveness is the duty of those who have been forgiven. And secondly, we should forgive because it's in our own best interest to do so. And I talked about a number of reasons why that's so. This morning, I want to mention five more reasons why we should forgive those who sin against us. Number three in the list is that forgiving is often the only way to settle a debt. An offense creates a moral debt. The offender owes us something. But sometimes those debts can't be paid by the offender. For example, the unjust servant in the Bible owed millions. That was a debt way bigger than he could ever pay. The parent whose child was killed by a drunk driver will never see any restitution or apology that can in any way make up for the loss of their child. Same is true for the person whose childhood innocence was stolen by an immoral relative. Nothing can make up for these things. In, in these cases, and others like them, we may seek vengeance to try to even the score. But vengeance never really does get even because everybody's perception of what's fair is different. The pain a person causes me always feel, feels heavier to me than it does to them, and vice versa. If you hurt me and I retaliate, I may feel like we're now even, but you won't. You'll feel the need to retaliate and even maybe to escalate the firepower. Gandhi said, if we all live by the dictum of an eye for an eye, soon the whole world will be blind. So what's the way out of these dilemmas? How can we settle these kinds of debts where the other person can't pay it? Well, the only way is for us to pay that. We have to accept the fact that we've been wounded, that we are owed a huge debt, but that the other person is never going to pay it. So we decide to pay it ourselves by accepting the hurt. <clears throat> Think, for example, about the debt we owe God. Is there any way we can pay that off? Psalm 49.8 says, The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough. Jesus said in Matthew 16.26, What can a man give in exchange for his soul? And the answer, of course, is nothing. We are completely lost. We have no possible way to pay God the debt we owe. How has God settled that debt? By paying it himself. He suffered the consequences of our sin. And that allows us now the possibility of being reconciled to him. And in the same way, we have to come to grips with the fact that in some cases, it's impossible for the other person to do anything that would repay the debt they owe us. So we decide to pay it ourselves. It's a high price, but it's the only way out of the emotional prison we put ourselves in when we refuse to forgive. A fourth reason to forgive others is that it stops the cycle of blame and revenge. One of the strong emotions we typically feel when we've been hurt is a desire for revenge. We want to hurt them back. As my father told me when bigger boys started picking on me at school, hit them back harder. Well, that's a very natural human reaction, but it's not very helpful. In my case, being the smallest kid on the playground, had I tried that, I would have gotten myself pounded to a pulp. But beyond that, revenge and blaming the other never really solves anything. It has no way of stopping itself. 
On our recent vacation, we went through the Eisenhower Tunnel under the Continental Divide and also went up and over Loveland Pass on U.S. Route 6. On the downside of both of those steep hills, there are huge warning signs to truckers to go slowly. And then periodically, we pass the truck escape ramps on the side of the road. They're filled with loose gravel, and they curve sharply up to slow and then stop the momentum of a truck that might have lost its brakes. When a relationship deteriorates into mutual blaming and revenge, it's like a truck without brakes. <laughs> There's no stopping it. The momentum just carries it further and faster and faster and faster until one or the other party decides to take the escape ramp. And that ramp is called forgiveness. We can offer forgiveness or we can ask for it, but it's the only safe way off the road at that speed. Philip Yancey talks about a novel by a Nobel laureate named Gabriel Garcia Marquez. The, the novel's called In Love, the novel is called Love in the Time of Cholera. And uh, this, uh, this writer has a, a, a story that illustrates the pattern of unforgiveness. There's a, a marriage in this novel that disintegrates over a bar of soap. It was the wife's job to keep the house in order, including providing towels, toilet paper, and soap in the bathroom. And one day she forgot to replace the soap. A little oversight that her husband mentioned in an exaggerated way. I've been bathing for almost a week without any soap. And she vigorously denied. Although it turned out that she had indeed forgotten, her pride was at stake and she wouldn't back down. For the next seven months, they slept in separate bedrooms and ate in silence. Even when they were old and placid, writes Marquez, they were very careful about bringing it up, for the barely healed wounds could begin to bleed again as if they had been inflicted only yesterday. Yancey asks the question, how can a bar of soap ruin a marriage? Because neither partner would say, stop, this cannot go on, I'm sorry, forgive me. Yancey also relates a story from Mary Carr's book about a truly dysfunctional family. The book is called The Liars Club. And it's about a Texas uncle who remained married to his wife but didn't speak to her for 40 years after a fight over how much money she spent on sugar. One day he took out a lumber saw and sawed their house exactly in half. He nailed up planks to cover the raw sides and moved one of the halves of the house behind a few scruffy pine trees on the same acre of ground. And there the two, husband and wife, lived out the rest of their days in separate half houses. <laughs> one of the things those stories illustrate is just how petty the original offense can be and how huge it can grow through the lack of forgiveness. Forgiveness offers a way out of that kind of nonsense. It doesn't necessarily settle all the questions of blame and fairness. It may even pointedly avoid them. It certainly does not demand payment from the other, but it does allow a relationship to start over. Isn't that worth it? A fifth reason why we should forgive those who hurt us is because it's a powerful witness to the love of Christ. Yancey, again, relates that he flies a lot, and he'll often ask people on the plane, when I say the words evangelical Christian, what comes to your mind? He says he mostly hears things like pro-life activists, gay rights opponents, or proposals for censoring the internet. Some people mention the Moral Majority, which is an organization that was disbanded years ago. But not once has he heard a description of evangelical Christians that had anything to do with grace, love, forgiveness, and so on. Apparently, Yancey concludes, that is not the aroma Christians give off in the world. Jesus said in John 13, a new commandment I give you, love one another, as I've loved you, so you must love one another. 
By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. The standard for loving others that Jesus sets out for us here is his own love. He says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then he says in the following paragraph that he demonstrated his love most, most supremely by his death in our place. And that made possible his forgiveness of our huge debt. We need to demonstrate that same kind of love towards those who sin against us. In this passage, Jesus gives the world the right to conclude whether or not we're true Christians. He says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another as I have loved you. But is that what the world sees? If a person were to come into our church from the outside and, and just kind of circulate among us for a while, visiting various home fellowship groups and Sunday school classes, sitting in on our phone conversations, listening to us talk to friends over coffee, watching the way we, we relate to our, our fellow Christians and our relatives at home and our neighbors and coworkers, you think they'd see God's grace and forgiveness in action? In many cases, I'm sure they would. But in many other cases, they would conclude that the church is a place where judgment and condemnation and vengeance and bitterness are just as prevalent as they are out in the world. Folks, we can make a difference in this world, but only if we will give it the two things that are to be found nowhere else but in the church, the love and truth of God. Only the church of Jesus Christ can offer the world the truth of God's word, and only the church can show his unconditional love to hurting and broken people. If we show them the truth, Without the love, that's not very attractive. But if the world can see us interacting with one another, experiencing all the misunderstandings and the hurts and offenses and slights and so on that, that just naturally occur when sinful people try to relate, but then showing the forgiving, grace-filled love of Christ to one another, that will make a difference. What kind of reputation do we as a body of believers have in our community? Is it as a group of people who love one another with Jesus' forgiving love? The sixth reason why we should forgive those who hurt us is this is a very practical application of the Golden Rule. There are versions of the Golden Rule floating around in other uh, religions. Confucius said, what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. Zoroaster was an ancient Persian who said, that nature alone is good, which refrains from doing unto another whatever is not good for itself. Hinduism teaches, this is the sum of duty. Do nothing unto others which would cause you pain if done to you. Buddhism says, hurt not others in ways that you yourself would find hurtful. The Greek philosopher Epictetus said, what you avoid suffering yourself, seek not to impose on others. And Socrates put it this way, do not do to others what would anger you if done to you by others. So lots of people have put it negatively. But it took Jesus Christ to state the principle in its positive form, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And this was such a significant revision that it's been called the golden rule. His command is not just to avoid doing hurtful things, but to take positive action, to be intentional, purposeful in our relationships with people, and to take that initiative to do good to them. Now, some people have suggested the rule shouldn't read, do unto others as you would have them do to you, because that's self-centered. They say it should be, do unto others as they would have you do to them. But this is actually not always the loving thing to do. For example, what about the drug addict who wants the doctor to just keep writing prescriptions for narcotic painkillers? Or the teenage boy in the backseat of the car who's describing to his girlfriend how she can show that she loves him? In these situations, and many more like them, what the individual wants is not good for him. 
whereas love will always do what's good for the other. I've mentioned that forgiving others is not the same as feeling forgiving towards them. We choose to let go of the offense, and we trust our emotions to catch up later. That's because love is not fundamentally a feeling. It is, as Marriage Encounter says, a daily decision. Let me just read you some of the very familiar phrases in 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul defines agape love, and see if you can hear any emotions in the list. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. It seems to me that love is fundamentally a function of our will, not the emotions. We choose to act in loving ways, whether we feel like it or not. And that's the essence of the golden rule. We choose to treat others the way we would like to be treated if we were in their shoes. And how is that? Well, if you had offended somebody you cared about and it broke your relationship with them, how would you want them to treat you? Would you want them to hold that against you? To feel negative and critical towards you? To hate you? Probably not. You'd want them to forgive you. And since that's how we would want them to treat us, we apply the golden rule and choose to forgive those who have offended us. The seventh and most, perhaps the most important reason why we should forgive is because it's a prerequisite to our being forgiven by God. In what we call the Lord's Prayer, Jesus gives us a pattern for how to pray. He says in uh, Matthew 6:12, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then just two verses later, he comments on just that one sentence in this model prayer. He says, If you forgive men when they sin against you, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is a difficult passage, and it's caused lots of problems for Christians who take it seriously. At first glance, it can sound like Jesus is saying that if we don't forgive others their sins against us, God won't forgive any of our sins, and we thereby place our salvation in jeopardy. I don't think that's what he's saying. Note that the prayer begins with the phrase, Our Father. The whole context of this prayer is children praying to their Heavenly Father who will never leave us or forsake us. So it does not mean that if we fail to forgive, God will withhold his judicial forgiveness that saves us. Jesus is talking about God's daily parental forgiveness of his wayward children. If we sin, are we still the Father's child? Absolutely. But there are consequences to our sin, one of which is that our fellowship with the Father is broken. Just as when our children break our household rules. They're still our kids, but our fellowship with them is broken until they apologize or we've dealt with that in some way. So when we fail to forgive those who sin against us, that sin of unforgiveness on our part creates a distance between us and the Father that will not go away until we repent and forgive our offenders. The parable of the unmerciful servant is an illustration of this very point. A servant owed his king millions of dollars and the king forgave the entire debt. But that servant then went out and demanded payment from a fellow servant who owed him only a few dollars. When the king heard about it, he said, this is Matthew 18, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And then Jesus goes on. In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. 
the torturers here represent the rod of God's discipline. And the point of the parable is the same point Jesus is making in the Lord's Prayer. The Christians who refuse to forgive others will be subject to the severest kind of discipline until they learn to forgive as they have been forgiven. What kind of discipline might this be? What's well, the kind of things I was mentioning last week? I pointed out that we need to forgive for our own good because if we don't, we subject ourselves to emotional stress and distress. We might form a hard cast around our emotions so that we can't really properly relate to anyone. It will certainly diminish our intimacy with God. It might develop a hard, demanding, critical spirit that can turn inward and destroy us with guilt. These are the torturers Jesus is talking about in that parable, and they will do their work until we pay back all we owe, which is to forgive those who have sinned against us. Why do we owe them that forgiveness? Because God has forgiven us so much. Leonardo da Vinci, just before he began work on his Last Supper painting, had a violent argument with a fellow painter. Da Vinci was so bitter that he determined to paint the face of his enemy, the other artist, into the face of Judas and thus take his revenge by handing down this man in infamy and scorn to succeeding generations. The face of Judas was, therefore, one of the first ones that he finished. And everybody could easily recognize it as the face of the painter with whom he had quarreled. But when da Vinci came to paint the face of Christ, he could make no progress. Something seemed to be baffling him, holding him back, frustrating his best efforts. Finally, he came to the conclusion that the thing that was blocking him was that he had painted the face of his enemy onto the face of Judas. So he painted out the face of Judas and was then able to resume his work on the face of Jesus. And this time, he did it with great success. If we want to see the face of Jesus clearly, we will have to remove the barrier our unforgiveness has erected between us.